Thanks, Matt. Let's just pray before we open up God's word. Father, this morning we are reliant on you. We're reliant on your spirit to work in us and through us. And we're reliant on you to give us understanding of what this passage means for us. Lord, there's much here that uh, could cause us challenge to our hearts. But Lord, guide us by your spirit to truth and also guide us to our Saviour who saves us from ourselves and provides us strength to live the life you intend us to. Help us now, in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> you may well have had a bit of a sense of uh, foreboding or dread, or uh, as the reading was read this morning, because, well, how's this going to go? This is not something that we're comfortable talking about at the moment, are we? I thought I'd conduct a quick social experiment just to show you how uncomfortable we are with being given directions. I thought just everyone just stand up where you are. Just You're all so sub- submissive. This is that was good. That's all I wanted. Just sit down. That's fine. Thank you for undertaking that social experiment. I claim to have no authority over you other than just trying to lighten the mood as we start, because this is going to be a, a topic that is delicate, and I think it is contentious, especially in the season we've been in. We've just proved we're quite capable of being submissive and obedient when we don't even know the point of it. Um, so <laughs> there's, there's a lot of that in the last few years where we've done stuff purely to be obedient. And because we, we don't know the outcome of some things, but we're going to trust ourselves and be submissive. But we naturally also have an aversion to being told what to do. Oh, I do, anyway. Even road rules, because that's a safer thing to talk about. You know, we don't like to be told that we have to indicate to leave a roundabout. We don't like being told to do that, it seems, because we don't do it a lot of the time. We don't like to be told that we have to observe the speed limit at all times. We don't like to be told that we have to declare all our income. We don't even like that we're told we have to submit something by a certain time. And in Australia, we don't even like to be told to vote. That's how ironic it is. We complain about nearly everything we're told to do when it comes to engagement with civil authorities or even just in general. We have an inclination to question authority, and even in Australia, I think, to mock authority, if you want an example of that. Whenever a new prime minister or even premier is uh, elected, it's usually just a short amount of time before there's a parody, before there's someone doing good impersonations or bad impersonations, depending on your opinion of that person. That's just the way Australians operate. I remember... um, driving into work the, the weekend after the state election, and already within a couple of days, they had a little segment ready to parody the new Premier, Peter Malinowskis, and doing quite a good job of his voice and annotations and all those sorts of things. It's something we're prone to do, is look at authority and poke at it, criticise it, mock it, even if we don't have necessary an inclination towards disobedience against it all 
the time. That's a bit of a cultural issue. There's an age issue sometimes. Younger kids don't like having rules in the home or at school. But for all of us, all of us, when we really truly think about it, submission is not just a cultural issue, it's a heart and an attitude before God issue as well. We don't like the idea of being under anybody. And that's what this word means, this be subject uh, phrase, that verb that is used. It's, it's coming up under, it's lining up under someone. We don't like being under someone. We like being autonomous. We like being in control ourselves. So submission can sometimes feel like a bit of a four-letter word. And Peter here, though, is not giving us a suggestion to submit. It's a command. And he's doing that because this is how it's flowing from last week, verses 11 and 12, how the Christian community is to, to show God's glory and how they live in the broader societies, that they live in submission to authority. That good, faithful servants of God will be good citizens. And we have two reactions to this passage. And I dare say there's already those among us this morning that have already had these reactions. Yeah, but when's the ex- where are the exceptions? That's probably the first reaction we all sometimes jump to. Where's the exception to this? Because surely Peter doesn't mean to be subject all the time in every way. The other reaction as well is, I hope so-and-so is listening. Because we've, we've taken that position, sometimes we take these sorts of direct commands from Scripture devoid of their gospel context, and unfortunately we sometimes use them as weapons against people who we think might not be subjecting themselves the way they should. Neither of those approaches is healthy. I don't think we find either of those approaches uh, as applications from the text either. Both can be dangerous, both can be divisive, both are usually grounded in, in a bit of fear or pride. And Peter here outlines that when we're submitting ourselves under others, when we're lining up under the authorities that God has put over us, we will suffer. We will suffer even when we are not doing wrong. So 1 Peter, in some ways, is all about that context. You will suffer when you do what is right, when you do good. And that's Peter's encouraging believers that are scattered everywhere, including us, that we, we put aside fear and pride we look to this shepherd of our lives and trust in him. We trust, entrust ourselves to the one true judge, just as Christ himself did, and we live then with joy and hope. So, as we've already mentioned, the first couple of, verse, the couple of verses before this, in verses 11 and 12, Peter has been urging believers to abstain from certain passions of the flesh, to put aside the natural desires and inclinations that we have. Those desires have changed. We are now meant to live in a God-honouring way before those who do not know God. Uh, People that see our good deeds and glorify God when Jesus returns, verse 12 tells us. 
Then in this section, through the end of chapter three and right through you know, into chapter, sorry, end of chapter two, right through to chapter three, Peter gives examples of how these good works are meant to be lived out, what they look like in our, our civil engagements, what they look like in our workplaces. Next week we'll think about what that looks like in our homes, in our marriages, especially when mistreatment and unfair treatment and unjust treatment in those settings is not just likely but actually to be expected for believers and for Christians in particular. So Peter's instructions and commands in these verses centre around the attitude of the believer as they undergo all this stuff happening to them, all this mistreatment, how they're going to act, how they're going to react, what's the attitude of their heart going to be towards others as this is happening. And Peter's instruction is to show honour. Show honour, even when you're being mistreated. Verse 13 points out that we subject ourselves to human institution. Verse 18, say we subject ourselves to even unjust masters. Chapter 3 is going to talk about wives subjecting themselves to their husbands. And then he'll go on to talk about just more broadly, all of you have unity and sympathy towards one another, being subject to one another. Peter here has a very specific and targeted audience in mind. He's talking to believers. And he's talking to believers who are going to suffer, who are suffering, who will suffer, and they're suffering innocently. They have done no wrong. They have done no evil. These are the people he's talking to. Other places in Scripture will talk to those, to the ones who are doing the evil. There are places in Scripture that talk to that, but the audience here is for those who are suffering innocently. And this morning we just want to look at the commands he has for these people living in that context. He wants them to submit for the Lord's sake. He wants them to, to live free as servants of God. And he wants them to follow Jesus, the good shepherd and overseer of their souls. So firstly, there's Think about this theme of submitting for the Lord's sake. This is the first command Peter sort of gives us in this section. <clears throat> and we get a couple of reasons why we should submit. First one's pretty clear. Submit for the Lord's sake, he says. Well, what does that mean? Well, the Lord's sake, it could just be a matter of reading down to verse 15. So this is the will of God. This is in God's will that we would submit it's not just that God wills it and commands it. We actually go on to read the rest of the section, verses 21 to 25. We're given an example of how to do it in Jesus. And also the motivation and power to do it ourselves. Verse 24 talks about that. Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so we could die to sin and live to righteousness. So if we're looking at this and saying, well, sure, we're to submit for Lord's sake. What does it mean? He's commanded it. He hasn't just commanded it. He's shown us how to do it. He hasn't just commanded it and shown us how to do it. He's actually given us the power and the right motivation to do it. We'll unpack a bit more of that later on. But God doesn't just give us this instruction and leave us alone. Or leave us without hope and leave us in that position. He gives us his son. 
The second reason we're told to submit is that it provides a powerful apologetic to a watching world. Verse 15 tells us that. Again, this is the will of God, that by doing good you shall put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. So living righteously, living as God wants us to, living in submission to authority and doing good. This shows to the world who's watching, the world who does not know God, those people have something different. They can do good even when evil is being done to them. Now there's already enough there probably for us to be a bit conflicted and be unsure of, of what that all means in our, in our context. So I, wanna, I do want to take some time this morning to slow down and think through this. I think God gives us his scripture as it is, as one whole book, but when we approach it as his whole counsel, especially as we preach it in the way we've been preaching, we're going to come to timely passages. I think it's good just to slow down and think about these things. I come to you this morning definitely not an expert in submission to authority. I'm definitely not an expert at having a good attitude towards obedience um, in settings that God has called me to be obedient in. But what does the text instruct us to do? Because there's enough here to upset each one of us. I dare say you've already been a bit uncomfortable, a bit challenged. I have at least, so maybe I'm just speaking for myself. Peter's command here to be submissive to human institutions, it comes under inspiration from the Holy Spirit. It comes in uh, agreement with Jesus' teaching to his disciples that they should submit to authorities and pay taxes. It's in agreement with Jesus' teaching there. And Paul in Romans as well, Romans 13, talks in the same vein about submission to authority. This command leaves little room for us. It leaves little room for us excusing ourselves from submission to authority or honouring those in leadership. And there's a nuance there. It also leaves uh, little room for anyone who wholeheartedly endorses everything that every human institution ever does. It doesn't leave room for wholehearted endorsement of government institutions either. Because, he says, the role of the government whereas the emperor as supreme or the governor sent by him is to punish those who do evil and reward those who do good. So, we're left in a predicament here. Think about it from this two angles. Maybe you're more likely to rebel against government authorities and rules. Now, we don't always like observing speed limits and road rules. And again, I'm using that because it's a safe example. But when we actively and purposely break road rules, because you know, I know better how to handle my car on this particular road than the civil authorities do. Let's, let's be honest. I know how to drive a car on a dirt road over the speed limit and be safe. I know that. I know how to do it. I know better than them. That's not just me placing myself above the law. That's me directly disobeying an instruction from God to be submissive to 
authority, and it's usually pride motivating me to do that. I am capable of doing this, and I know better. So pride can motivate us to rebel. The other thing, when it really comes down to it, is I don't speed because I think it's unsafe. I don't speed because I fear the fine. Uh, you know, I've, I know what I'm capable of doing and I know the police are often around, so I'm going to play it safe. I don't want to get fined. I don't want to lose my licence. So my, my main motivation for submitting to authority is the fear of the punishment that might come. I haven't truly submitted for the Lord's sake, I've submitted for my own sake. And that's a dangerous position to be in because that's self-interest as well. And when we do that and when we follow that line of thinking, that probably leads me to not care for others as much as I should because it might risk my position of safety or security. It might be fear that motivates my submission just that it can be pride that motivates my rebellion. It might be. Those are good things to check our hearts against as we come to this. I'm both at the same time, it seems. But as you're probably tracking along with this, things automatically come to our mind of, but what if? What if? What does submission to human institutions looks like when a government kills women for not wearing appropriate head covering? What about when a government lies, as they do? When a government creates laws making the killing of the unborn acceptable? When a government mandates something that's against the consciences of many? Or when workplaces threaten employees' jobs because they don't sign up to an inclusiveness policy and agree to use pronouns or celebrate certain things that, as Christians, we can't celebrate. What happens then? Tradition tells us that the same Peter that's calling us to be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, the same Peter that says, on everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honour the emperor, and was killed by the same emperor. A horrific death. Clearly our submission to authorities and human institution then, in a certain context, will may mean a great cost to ourselves. It will may mean, in certain settings of our current world, Imprisonment, death. We were speaking on a staff level about this passage several weeks ago and Pastor Sam from the Chinese congregation said there's both sides of this argument, even in China, where those who have spoken out against the government have ended up in prison, lost their lives. And others who have said we need to submit to the government and do their work as covertly as they possibly can, still seeking wherever they can to do God's work. Even in the harshest of settings, we have to find a way to step forward. But we don't do that without counting 
the cost without seeking prayerfully to have great wisdom. What do we do as Christians in our context? I want us to listen to some other voices this morning. Mainly so if there's contention against it, you can go to them. There's three people I want to quote to you this morning and then we'll talk about some principles here. First one is John MacArthur and he says this. Believers are to be model citizens, known as law-abiding and not rabble-rousing, obedient rather than rebellious, respectful of government rather than demeaning of it. We must speak against sin, against injustice, against immorality and ungodliness with fearless dedication. But we must do it within the framework of civil law and with respect to civil authorities. Even when conscience leaves us no alternative but to disobey human authority, we must do so with respect, with a willingness to suffer whatever penalties or consequences may result. Chuck Swindle says this, we must act wisely and prayerfully approach our responsibility to submit to human government. We need to carefully consider our responses to the injustices and evils of that same government. The answer is not to follow the unholy agenda of a tyrant while wagging a flag of patriotism. That would dishonour God, the church and the world. We are not to barricade ourselves with a barbed wire compound and wage war against corrupt government officials who come knocking with a tax bill or a search warrant. That would dishonour the king and bring reproach to Christ. We live in the uncomfortable tension of Peter's seemingly impossible commands to honour everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God and honour the emperor. The last voice I want us to think from is Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who had three possibilities, he says, in regards to how the church interacts with the state. He said, you can, you can question the legitimate actions and the character integrity of the state. He said, the next step after that is to care for those affected by possible injustices by the state. He said, those two are non-negotiable for Christians. He said, the third option is not just to bind up the wounds beneath the wheel of the state, but to seize the wheel itself. That's the more extreme option. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer did all three in his life. The issue is that for believers in every time and place, from Peter's time right through to today, there's always going to be a battle that we have to fight. Many of our dear brothers and sisters have fought that battle in conscience, in words, in actions, in other places in the world. And they've actually chosen to maybe move and come to a different country seeking their their freedoms from such institutions. Others have chosen to stay. Neither have committed sin. But there's clearly a deep need for us to consider prayerfully what this command means for us. What it means, first of all, is we, we must obey God. And when God says submit to human authorities, we submit 
But as we'll see in a moment, God is still our main authority. We are his servants. And that's the next thing we want to speak to. We are to be subject for the Lord's sake. But then we are to live free, Peter tells us, as servants of God. Verse 16 says, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Life is difficult to navigate. And at this point in our passage, if we're true believers and we want to live to please God and live in his will, we want to be aligned under him. So we submit for his sake to those who are in authority, even sometimes when it's hard. But we still live in a broken world. Evil can come at us, does come at us, and we realise, as we may have already done, sometimes our motives for rebellion or for submission are not always right. In that context, Peter says, live free. It seems like a contradiction in some ways because we're enslaved this way or we're enslaved that way to the call of the world and what they may tell us to do or to our own indecision or uncertainty. But he says there's a better way and that's to be subject to God, be servants of God living free. Again, it sounds like a contradiction. But the best freedom we can have is to live under God's hand. To be found with with that attitude of, of servanthood helps us to endure suffering while doing good. And to those who will suffer unjustly, and that means all of us in some way or another. Because at some point in our lives, we will. We will have suffering and it will be unfair to be uncalled for, and we don't know what the meaning of it will be or when the end of it will be. But the call here is that we would not be found to do evil as those times come upon us. We're being instructed here to eliminate those natural reactions, the fleshly reactions, or the knee-jerk reactions that so often come of, of blame, of complaint. Because our natural tendency when we're hurt is to hurt in return. This, of course, extends beyond what governments and and workplaces can do to us, but extends to all of our relationships. If we truly follow Christ's example of suffering, as we'll look at in a moment, by submitting ourselves under God's hand through mistreatment, following Jesus' command to turn the other cheek, We may well stop ourselves from trying to manufacture ways to get even, to get back, to return hurt for hurt. We would still feel the hurt, that's a genuine thing, but we wouldn't pass it on. We would leave it in the hands of the God who does all things well, the only just judge. How do we silence those who would seek to attack us? So we're found to do good even when suffering unfairly. 
there's a high calling in verse 17 that sort of sums up some of the whole passage of what Peter's asking believers to do to honour everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honour the emperor. Notice the order and pattern here. Honouring everyone does not exclude loving your brother or loving your brother's and sister, or another way of reading, honouring everyone does not exclude you from prioritising and loving your brothers and sisters, those closest to you. Also, honouring the emperor is kept in check and tempered by a first our fear for God. Too often, we're fearing others, saying we love God, but just honouring ourselves. The two great commandments of the whole of Scripture is to love the Lord our God with all our whole heart, soul, mind, strength, and to love our neighbour as ourselves. These two great commandments are summed up by Peter here. We're also told that the fear of the Lord, which we're instructed to keep central in our lives with love of others, that begins, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So as we seek to know how to honour everyone, and honour the emperor, love others and love God, we find ourselves needing wisdom. Where does that start? Start with fearing God. It puts the others in their right place. Peter then goes on to talk about servants. <clears throat> and here he's, the language is moved. We've talked in verse 16 about being a servant of God. Here, the language changes a bit. This servant that Peter talks about and gives an example of is a household slave. It's a, it's a person in, who is not in an enviable position in Peter's time. Uh, Roman culture and slavery, of course, was just, uh, it, it was horrific, but it was also better than the alternative, if that makes sense. There's a, there's a lot more you can talk about in, in slavery in, the, in Scripture, but... You know, slaves were the lowest class in society, of that there's no doubt. And they were also the majority of society as far as Roman culture was. On, or nearly, I think someone said two-thirds, but they didn't back that up with any facts or figures, so I'm always sceptical of that. But there was a vast majority of people in the Roman world were slaves without any rights as citizens of the country. But these slaves could have families, uh, they could even own property themselves, earn income to a certain extent to then pay off uh, whatever debt they might have to free themselves. Uh, they were allowed to um, have education. They were even employed to educate both the masters and the master's children. There was all sorts of privileges in some form that a slave had, but at the same time, that was all subject to their environment, whether they had a good and gentle master or an unjust and cruel master. Now, I think there's often a correlation made between uh, you know, passages like this in the scripture of slaves and masters, and we directly put that over into workplaces. I don't think that's always fair to our employee, employers or to employees. It's a very different context and, and culture. Sometimes, though, there's helpful principles to be drawn from it. So as much as we might say we slave away, 
I think we all get to go home at the end of the day. Um, so let's be careful with how much we, we really pull out of some of these texts. But let's, what's a, something we can learn definitely from this is that we will be mistreated at some form or another in our workplaces at times. Sometimes because of our faith, but sometimes just because our employer are motivated by greed and selfishness and a lack of general compassion. The principle here for us in our day is how you respond when that happens. How you respond when you're treated unfairly in that situation. Well, I hope none of your masters are actually beating you. How will you respond when you're overlooked for a promotion? When you're overlooked for, for something that's given to another because of your faith? How will you react when you're forced to choose between more time at work and more time with your family? Or when you're forced to choose between more time at work or worship on a Sunday or the gathering of God's people? How will you choose in those moments? How will you react when leave is, your leave is cancelled by another staff member goes on leave at the same time and you're working harder? And How will you react in those moments? And sometimes we can just be filled with stress and anxiety about the very thought of going to work. So how do we engage with that as believers? Well, Peter instructs us here twice. He says, it's a gracious thing to be found to be suffering for doing good in that setting. He said the way we can be found to be doing good in that setting and how we're found to be receiving grace in that setting is to be mindful of God. He says that in verse 19. It's a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows by suffering unjustly. Knowing you can undertake your work, that you can enter into your workplace, your employment, even when it leads to suffering in some form, whether that's really, really mild, like I didn't get my 10-minute break today. Sorry, looking at all the tradies and thinking about how much they probably miss all those breaks sometimes, right through to my entitlements have been cancelled and that's unfair. Or something else has happened that's grossly unjust or unsafe. Mild or extreme suffering. How are we going to be mindful of God? Because you know, those things will happen. Oh, we keep God in mind by acknowledging his presence is with us. He is there with us. He's promised to be with us. So be mindful of him. He's there with you, even in the mistreatment and the suffering. His presence, his, his power, and his peace can be with you. Be mindful of God when you're suffering unjustly. Verse, uh, end of verse 20. It's a gracious thing in the sight of God. You know, God sees you as well. He's not looking at He's not distracted. He knows exactly what you're feeling. You can call upon his name, be mindful of him. And in that moment, you know he's looking at you. He's giving you his grace in that time. There's also something to be said for just, if it is a horrible situation, there's such a thing as giving notice and making sure you don't subject yourself to those sorts of things when you don't have to. So if we've thought of uh, being instructed to be subject for the Lord's sake, 
thought about what it is to live free even though we're servants. We do this because we can follow Jesus, a good shepherd and overseer of our souls. There's 21 to 25 have these beautiful verses uh, that speak to us of Christ and his example and of his salvation. Now we can know that Jesus has faced unjust and unfair treatment. Knowing that is sometimes a comfort in a strange way. We don't have to like that Jesus suffered for us, but we know that he sympathises with us because he has suffered unjustly. But also, Peter doesn't just leave it there as Christ being our example in suffering because Jesus suffered unfairly and he didn't say anything nasty to those who spoke nastily to him and he endured all these things and he didn't sin. You go and do the same. That would be a horrible way to end this instruction from Peter. To leave Jesus as our example is crushing. We can't live like Jesus did. Should we aim to live like Jesus did? Absolutely. Absolutely. But the strength to do that, the power to do that, comes from the reality that it's not just we're following his example, he is our saviour. Our faith in his work. Our faith in the fact that he bore our sins in his body on the tree. That, that is what empowers us to consider in our situation, in our context, yes, we are experiencing suffering in some form. We will experience suffering in some form. But we can do that somehow knowing Christ is not just with us, knowing he's not just our example, but that he is our saviour. That then gives us power to live freely. To We're free now from, from having the actions that we used to have, from having the reactions we used to. We can entrust ourselves to the same judge that he did, The ultimate example of, of Christ is, is one where we should be humbled by. When we think through what he went through and how he responded to that. And we're told that he committed no sin. No, there's any no, there's any deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. At not responding in kind is one of the most notable ways to endure unfair criticism or attack. You know, our first impulse when someone comes to us to insult us, to attack us, to hurt us, is usually to come back at them. But yet here we have Jesus. We're called to follow him. Impossible. That doesn't stay there because impossible for me because my tongue comes out with things. My heart is full of things that come out of my mouth when I'm attacked, when I'm suffering unjustly. I do sin when I'm suffering unjustly. 
But here is Jesus who did not sin. And because he didn't sin, and because he bore my sin, I can come to him, put myself under him as a wandering sheep. Submission defines how Christians should live because it defines how Jesus himself lived and died. Jesus' whole ministry, his whole life, his whole passion, his death, his resurrection, was all done in submission to the Father. Philippians 2 verse 7 tells us he submitted himself to taking on the likeness of men, being found in the form of a servant. Peter is instructing believers, these are the kind of attitudes you are to have. Here's the example of Christ, here's the salvation of Christ, and he fixes then the behaviour and attitudes that are believers to have to the work of the cross. You'll mess up when you're suffering unfairly, but take that sin to the cross. Jesus has borne it, he's carried it, he's taken the punishment for it. He fixes it to the cross because he says, you might be able to live in submission to all human institutions. You might be able to do that. You might be able to tick every single box that's necessary to say that you have obeyed. You might be able to do that. I'm not saying you can, but you might be able to do that. You might even be able to go to the most horrible workplace possible and endure it. Grit your teeth, bear it, do the work, and serve an unjust master. You might be able to do that, but that still won't save you. Our righteousness does not come from our submission to government. Our willingness to endure horrible work conditions, it comes from Christ. He bore our sins in his body on the tree so we could die to our sins and live to righteousness. There's a wonderful phrase there because Peter is quoting, as he often does in his uh, writing from Isaiah, but especially Isaiah 53. He doesn't just leave it at the fact that Jesus has borne our sins. There's also there's this wonderful phrase, by his wounds you have been healed. Suffering unjustly will wound you. It will wound you. And unless you see that the Christ of the cross and the Christ of the empty tomb is powerful over sin, he can defeat death and is the judge of the whole earth. Unless you can see him as that, you will have wounds that are too deep for healing. It also means that us as believers have to look around not only to our own hearts and see where we have sinned, even in these areas we've spoken of this morning. But look around and see where there are wounds. And see where people might need this healing applied with care, with tenderness, with gentleness. It's impossible always sometimes to understand, but it's always possible to care. Christ, of course, also, this wonderful phrase, submitted himself to him who judges justly. In verse 23, 
And this was Christ, this Christ, this Jesus was subjected to the most heinous and awful of all human institutional treatments possible. Betrayed by those closest to him. He was falsely accused, dragged before an unjust court, charged with crimes that he didn't commit, mocked, brutally beaten, violently killed, and we're told he continued, he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Human institutions will be unjust. They will treat us unfairly, but God will always judge justly. And we can follow Christ into this. We've been through a time in these last few years where we've struggled with this. We've struggled about where to land as believers, where to land as churches, where to land as individuals, where to land as employees and friends and family members. And I certainly haven't got it right a lot of the time. And I don't want to speak for all of you, but I don't think many of us got it right. Because a lot of our hearts were often looking inward. Mine was anyway. What do we do with this instruction? What do we do with this passage? Well, we submit to it. And we submit knowing that we're sheep. We're not going to get it right. We are going to stray. We are going to make mistakes. But we have a shepherd who cares for his sheep. He knows we wander. He knows we don't get it right. That's why he came. And when I think of myself in certain moments, even this um, specific moment in workplace many years ago, I used to dread going into work in the morning. I used to dread it. My little walk into work would become this moment where I fantasised about scenarios where I could confront people and tell them exactly what I was feeling and thinking. And of course I'd come out the hero in my own mind against this evil authority figure and, you know, all would be rosy. In those moments I was lost. I was wandering. I wasn't looking to God in those moments. And I was lost because I had no real power to change the circumstance I was in. I certainly had no power over uh, my employer's attitude or heart. What I needed, and by God's grace what I found, was the fact that I have a good shepherd. I have a good shepherd who will care for me, even in the midst of unfair treatment. Someone who I could come under and be subject to, who would not harm me, but would lead me who would grant me freedom from the need to sin, would even grant me forgiveness from sin, someone who would help me live righteously. Having a shepherd like Jesus is freeing and liberating because you're then under his care. 
takes time. It's still taking me time. But God does do a deep work in our hearts as we come to him as our good shepherd. Commit the care of our souls to him and entrust ourselves to the God who judges justly. So my question, questions at the end of this morning are not if you agree with what the government's done here or there. It's not about whether you think you're going to leave your employee, employer. It's nothing like that. Who's caring for your soul? Who have you submitted the care of your life into? Because Christ is the only one who can save us. The only one whom we can trust to be over us and never fail us. Let's pray. Father, as we have considered a, a passage this morning that seems in some ways timely but in other ways so confronting, we acknowledge and I acknowledge that I have not walked in this as perhaps I should have. Lord, our hearts are often far from thinking of how to please you and live in your will when we know we're facing unjust and unfair treatment. Lord, help us by your spirit and by your grace to be mindful of you in those moments, to be found doing good when we're suffering unjustly. Lord, help us also to not just look to Christ as our example, to look to him as our saviour and as our Lord, as our shepherd and overseer, the one who does care for our souls and will not fail us. Lord, help us to entrust ourselves to you the one who judges justly and fairly. Help us by your grace to see this truth, but also to know this. In Jesus' name, amen.